Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll better do a little introduction to this podcast. So we're, I'm here with uh, Jim Harrington, and we're usually I do this podcast. The last two, I've been walking through the streets of uh, in some unidentified Arab Arab uh, city. So now we're in uh, Krakow uh, in Poland, and we're in the back room of probably the coolest. Uh, probably if you lived in this room, you think you were living in absolute squalor. Um, but, if you're, if you're a hipster, this is amazing. It took a lot of money to look this... <laughs> what is Dolly Parton's line? It takes a lot of money to look this trashy. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm here with uh, the most... One of the, one of the coolest climbers, uh, coolest human being I've ever met, really. Uh, <laughs> Jim Harrington. And as you can tell, I've uh, put on my cool kind of like, hi, welcome to the jazz hour here. I've lost my voice from... Um, Talking too much, mainly to more, talking too much at other people. So, well, I think there's a voice losing bug going around. There's three other people that lost their ability to talk. Not, not, not a good thing to have at a, a festival. Not so. the ones I would have chosen. No, it's better than um, it something or <laughs> gonorrhea or something. You know. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll just cut that bit out later on because you know, we don't want to be inappropriate. Inappropriate in this. Yes, you know? we do. So, so. Um, uh, we have no no questions written down, so it's that kind of thing. No. So I thought I guess I thought maybe we should start with uh, something that always sticks in my mind is when I first I think I probably met you before because we both won an award at the same night in uh, in Banff, and then we met at Kendall, and um, you came in on your Harley Davidson, you know. I would never have a Harley Davidson. No, you'd have some kind of. I would have a Triumph. Second, yeah, Second World War kind of. Triumph. <laughs> you know, you're almost like you're almost like a Patrick Swayze kind of Roadhouse kind of. Uh, yeah. you know, I know you're not seen you're not seen Roadhouse, so have you? I, I saw it just long enough to see my friend John Doe's acting uh, um, extravagant. <laughs> after he watch after he watch it really. Um, uh, so, so yeah, we, so, so, so someone told me. Uh, someone told me that they were always try to get. Do you know, like with Neil and I? It's like a really famous film that every single line in it is quotable, so people can like you know repeat. A bit like Monty Python, people can repeat every single line from every Monty Python program ever. And someone told me that whenever they had meetings, they always tried to put in one line from Roadhouse, sneak into the meeting. So only the other people would realise this, but you know, the manager wouldn't realise. And the only one line they never managed to get into the film was, I used to fuck people like you in prison. <laughs> yes, I've known so, that line. <laughs> so but the, I remember we did this interview, I was interviewing you, 
and we were talking about all sorts of stuff. I remember asking you about your your pathway into the creative. You know, you're like a you know brilliant photographer, and your your pathway into that. And you told us. I'll get you to tell the story in a minute. But afterwards, uh, I think we said, is anybody here in the creative industries? And there was these two guys with their hands up. And they were both doing media studies at university. I think they were in like their third year. And at the end, they came up and they said, uh, we, just, we learnt more in this hour than we have at two years at university. So it was, I think it only cost them five pounds. So it was quite a good, quite a good value. Um, so it was like a really crap version of one of those masterclass uh, programs for five pounds um so maybe maybe we'll start if you know we will we will go like i think people should go and f- discover you for themselves that like you should definitely uh, look up your books even by the book the climbers but you should uh go back there's a lot of really good podcasts with jim you know talking about your your past and things but i think i, I think we should start with uh just tell us that you you know you you're a young lad and you get this camera and you you know that this sort of journey for into photography but um just tell us about this when you went from being a, like a, an amateur photographer you know like a really keen photographer where you became this beyond that to some kind of professional how did that how did that happen um how how did it we're skipping the how, how did, did it yeah, again, we, but yeah, we're going we, to the because we always have, these people always begin with they always start with how did you start climbing so I thought we'll avoid that and we'll just get that. yeah how did you when did you become someone who was paid to take photographs I'm from North Carolina from uh, Charlotte basically a small town but I do remember, I'll tell you the first job I ever had where I actually made greenbacks was uh, I knew this man this. Uh, a friend of mine was a bag boy at a grocery store, and he was kind of my punk rock music, one of my best friends, Pete. And um, <clears throat> he worked as a bag boy, and he, you know, the punk rock buttons you would wear on your shirt back yeah. in, in those days. And he was bagging groceries one day, and he said this um, kind of obviously kind of very erect, good posture, uh, seemed to be a gay man, kind of came up and pointed to his button and said, oh, the... I can't remember who the button was, you know, the buzzcocks yeah. or something. And so the guy, um, they became friends and he started inviting him over. And then my friend Pete said, oh, you should come over. This guy's really interesting. And uh, I started going over there. And then Pete stopped hanging out. And uh, I became friends with this guy. And so, you know, I'm a teenager with a lot of ideas about the world that I want to see. And I feel very stifled and fuddy-duddy Charlotte and um, this guy had lived in England already he was there during the punk rock days but he was also uh, really into um, what's your guy um, uh, Churchill yeah yeah expert on Churchill all these kind of crazy different interests very well read and um, but he was also sort of what a weird life you know he'd been in all these scenes in London but now he's in Charlotte managing the strip mall and in this appliance store that was opening up, having their little opening day on a Saturday, was Eileen uh, Fulton, who was one of these soap opera stars, actresses in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and this is about 1980. And uh, I don't know if you have this in England, but in America, 
uh, opening up an appliance store is sort of a thing <laughs> these sort of has-been celebrities do, um, you know, in the parking lot on opening day. So Eileen Fulton, kind of glamorous and pearls and a fur coat, but definitely kind of over the edge on her useful days, <laughs> opens this pathetic appliance store in Charlotte. And I got hired. He paid me like $40 to go document. So that was my first... Kind of brush with celebrity, <laughs> and I made forty bucks. Do you still have the? Do you still have the image? Uh, I have the image somewhere, but I actually even have the uh, check pay stub. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Try and you have a wall full of these amazing. No, uh, I would never display such stuff. But um, is it? Do you know, like, like no one? No one? No, no one knows the first email I ever sent. Like it's such an important thing in really in their it's like the baby step into the digital world, but no one really keeps it or knows what no even you know our first email email accounts was some weird thing like I think mine was like Tesco, you know Andy Kirkpatrick at Tesco dot net or something. I think. Yeah, it's like a whole. I digital. didn't even know how to walk up to a computer. You know, someone had to st- push me towards the front of the thing, and <laughs> here's the on button, and here's the. Did you ever hear that story? Someone was saying um, uh, they rang up like a helpline and they said uh, the, my computer's not working, and they said uh, well, they're trying to work out what was wrong with it. And they think that they said I think it's something wrong with the foot pedal, <laughs> and they had the mouse on the floor. <laughs> it's like a sewing machine. <laughs> so, but to, I don't know to answer your question. So I, I guess getting out of North Carolina, I went to this. Uh, couldn't really afford a, a great art school like I wanted to go to New York or somewhere but I went to a school in North Carolina that was a good technical school was this so how old were you uh, you know college age right after high school yeah right, what is that? so this instead of instead of going to university in the US you go to sort of college. well this was college university yeah whatever depends on what you're doing yeah I wanted to go to a great photography school. Yeah, where would that be in the U.S.? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I would have liked to... Well, even the Art Center, <clears throat> and there's one in Chicago, one in um, um, Atlanta. There was the... Uh, what do they call it in Pasadena? The really great one a lot of people came out of. Whatever. I could, We couldn't afford that. But this technical school, Randolph Technical College, they had some people from uh, Rochester, which is where Kodak was based. Yeah. So these were some of the scientists of, uh, which is weird because that's totally the opposite sort of type of person I am. Yeah. Well, there's one side of me, but as far as my photography, I'm definitely more of a feel person. Yeah. But it was good to get that kind of, uh, and I learned a lot from these guys, but I dropped out after a year and a half. Yeah. A lot of photochemistry and and using uh, densitometers and all these things that are completely useless now because everything's digital. Yeah. But um, I just had to get out of North Carolina, so I moved uh, out west to California. And. uh, But was that was that a good? I'm trying to answer your question in a simple way. But but you know, you're you're um, those, and it's almost like a Karate Kid kind of thing. You know, you have these scientists who are trying to teach you about emulsions and, and you don't want to you just want to have a, you want to go out and fight in a way yeah know. I was impatient um, I, I love learning and I did I do like science and you, I, weren't a, you weren't a chemist you want to be a well my father was a you know uh, a bit of a chemist in the textile biz and uh, I liked beakers I, and I liked um, the rigid uh, recipe formality and truth of chemistry you know yeah 
you know, it's true or false kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, the way it's no, it kills you. There's no, there's no your interpretation of chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And I like that. But I was just so impatient to get out in the world. I wanted to get on the mast of it, you know, the front of a ship and be shackled. And I was ready. And it, it, so impatient. And here I was right after high school again in a fucking classroom. Do you, do you remember any of the teachers? <clears throat> uh, yeah. Yeah. Do, do any of them have like an impression on you? In any school or in this it, college? In, in this college. Yeah, there was the uh, the one that I remember the most was sort of the most hard-ass kind. He was really the guy from Rochester. He was the, you know, sort of a genius, yeah. photochemistry genius. Yeah. I can't remember his name anymore, but uh, just really hardcore, very brutal. Because a lot, a lot of those people were working for uh, the CIA and... No sense of humor. You know, the... You know, a lot of these, you know, the U-2 spy planes and things. And, uh, you know, there were so much interesting uh, photography stuff came from the CIA. They were funding, you know, you could take a photograph from, you know, 50 miles looking sideways. And um, because it was a really good, it was a really good interview with someone who, when the Zebruder Zebruder film, you know, when it it was brought over to the the labs at um, at Langley, um, directly in the still in the camera, and the CIA the CIA photography guys there. Like usually everything was sent to Kodak uh, from the CIA, but these these were the guys in Langley, and they had to, you know, process it, and then they all watched it once, and then it was all put into a can, and it was taken away. But but I found that really interesting. The you know the the really the really technical side of photography is something we often forget but the same way you know like the rule of thirds and all these things there is like a you you can only break these rules once you can once you know what the rules are well that's what i tell uh i mean you know that's sort of a cliche about anything but but it really is true um because in the way i had to kind of see that in practice and really learn it was as i got got older and and you know, did a few things to where, you know, I guess enough that younger people came up asking me, I want to do this, I want to do photography, how do I do it? And my answers, I think, were always disappointing, which my answers were almost always something involving like a whole lot of hard work (laughs) and dedication. And and it wasn't sexy to them. (laughs) You know, I don't know what they think. It wasn't like an Instagram account, get a girlfriend who wears tights. Just take loads of photographs. I don't know what they were thinking, but like, and I would see them drop like flies and just, or, you know, practically eyes roll back in their head. It's like, you know, uh, and it's so different now with digital. You can just, but you know, the hours I spent alone in the, in the dark room, wanting to be a good printer and not going to parties and not hanging out with friends and being there from eight at night till six in the morning, kind of blowing the rest of the day. So, you know, I would spend days and nights and years trying to get good yeah nobody wants to hear that so you know people like like, and also kind of learning like you say learning the rules so you can break them yeah you got to really know you got to know the rule you got to know why you're breaking yeah yeah it's stupid to just be an anarchist for no reason yeah it's just chaos the the, the music suddenly could come into life here see if we can hear sounds like we've got sounds like we've got a soundtrack now I might see. Hold on. Hold on. Let's see if there's a speaker. I mean, I don't know.
soundtrack, is it? A little soundtrack there. Yeah. I think. Okay. They played pretty good music in here, so. So um, um, so so you, so people don't really so so we're starting here. We're starting again here because uh, we had a little musical interlude there. Um, so so people don't really appreciate the idea that you have to go out and work your ass off and learn learn the trade. The people that have come around to me, it seems like 90% of the time they want some kind of quick route. Um, maybe the people that don't come to me are just doing figuring it out on themselves because yeah. they're hard workers. And But, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. It, it, and I also tell these kids, you know, oftentimes younger people, like... Um, study all these the history of photography and look at all these people and you know don't think you're inventing the wheel you know figure out where you fit into this thing if you really love photography and this is like my music friends they do it the ones that I really like um, figure out what you're doing and who all these people are that study the jazz guys study the rock and roll guys study the country guys like learn that shit copy it and then sooner or later you start doing your own thing, but yeah. you get, but you got to learn that first. So I'll talk to these young kids and they don't know in, who anybody is. <laughs> They've got no sense of the history, which means they don't really have a sense of all those processes. Some people think this is fuddy, Daddy. It's like, oh man, that's just a bunch of heavy stuff. I don't need to know. But it's like, yeah, so what? Yeah. You think you're just some genius that's going to start whacking off digital quickie photos that? You know, do you want to be taken serious or not? Yeah, it's yeah. like learn this stuff. Yeah, that surprised me when you speak to um, climbing filmmakers, outdoor filmmakers. They've never seen any films. They've never seen Stanley Kubrick. Have never. They've, they've got no experience. So I, I can't understand these people that you know. You sense that they want to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, we see them at these festivals. They, you know, you expect that they want to win a prize. Well, winning a prize is respect. How do you get respect? But. You know, there is a yeah. chain of command to all this. Yeah, I'm also read um, The Guide to, Perplex, to the Perplexed by Werner Herzog or some of these books because they're, they're about someone making a life as a director. But we're starting from nothing. You know, I think Werner Herzog, he went to a production company and they just laughed at him because he was so young. And he just decided in that moment, I'll just do it all myself. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. And uh, that's a really valuable lesson if you're a... Yeah, but people are like, what kind of drone... What kind of drone should I get? You know, it's like, Christ, if I hadn't never see another drone shot. <laughs> you know, I was on the jury. Yeah. Uh, in one month, two different juries at Bilbao and in Banff. And uh, how many drone shots did I see? Drone shots and the time-lapse stars at night. You know, yeah. the stars and moving sli- across slide, the sky. Sliders, like... Every single movie. Yeah, and I I swore it's like whenever I make a film, I I will not use a drone no. and I will not do a time lapse <laughs> star shot. I think I think a lot of films suffer from a lack of the basic idea to tell a story. You know, tell a story that's interesting, and um, yeah, they're almost like an ad, like an advert. Maybe with people brought up on this diet of adverts. And I and I love visuals. I love. Um, you know, whatever effects, or, you know, I love interesting visuals, but it seems like people are just concerned with that. Yeah. Not the story. They learned how to do this trick, lots of tricks. Yeah. But, um, you know, you got to keep people engaged. And especially nowadays, 
the audience has seen all the tricks yeah yeah over and over so that's not going to keep their attention so yeah you know, the story is still the best way to do it yeah someone told me they, they had a you know, they had a, a project to film uh, expedition to everest and in the contract the climbers said we don't want to uh, you can't film us when we come down from the summit because we'll be so tired you know they, that was probably the that was probably going to be the best part of the film but they were so worried how they might look and you definitely have this thing where people are um, you know the, the, the people are uh, you know like they're embedded the cam- camera the film team are embedded with the climbers like they're, like they're embedded with the marines going into Basra or something in the, they're, 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 they're the friends of the climbers they don't want to make the climbers seem like selfish assholes or you know, so I think that that's the trick is to, is to make a film where you just set out to destroy this person and really get to the grips of their, you know, all their their failings and their, you know, and, and that creates like the real a real film. But if you go there, it's like a Red Bull advert. We don't want our ad, we don't want our athlete to look like his. One of my favorite memories ever in my whole life of uh, mountaineering um, imagery or story or whatever was when I was a little kid before I think I'd even climbed in the local crags or anything and just had my imagination of what climbing must be like and uh, I'm pretty sure it's the West Ridge of Everest hot Tom Hornbine yeah it's before I had the book but um, I had seen it I I think it was in National Geographic an excerpt from his book but, you know, I must have been nine years old or something. And it's the point where they'd been up there for a month or two, you know, trying to get up this thing. Been up at base camp and up in the ice and the snow. And they were finally coming back down after it all played out. And they got to the first patch of grass. And the, the Barry Blanchard with the National I don't know who took the picture. But, you know, way up high, whatever, wherever the... 18,000 feet, 17, 16,000 feet, wherever the first grass is. And uh, I think one of the guys, it might be Hornbines on his hands and knees. <laughs> and then they're joking around, but they're also thankful. Finally, yeah. this green sunlight hitting this little patch of emerald green, and they just were putting their face in it. And I thought, that turned me on as much as any of the other yeah, actual yeah. climbing stuff. The, the thought that, you know, people would go out like the moon yeah yeah come back to earth yeah. and then you're coming back into this thing yeah yeah it still stands out as a great little piece of yeah I think it's the same with a lot of people isn't it it's not the you know the market the marketing departments of the world they, they maybe they haven't they have no time for subtlety or nuance it's like everything's a 515 dino and it's yeah just, or base jumping for I think yeah, maybe that's why base jumping poetry so. in that stuff I mean I'm no time for poetry <laughs> blown away and inspired by the sheer athleticism of all these things but you know I got into nobody cares why I got into climbing because I'm not a notable climber <laughs> but I did get into it for the poetry and the kind of beauty of all that stuff too yeah not just the movement are you, are you like a romantic do you yeah. have a romantic view of Everything to a fault, probably. Yeah, extreme. Yeah, yeah. chronic. <laughs> Bad, probably. So you, were you, you're like the, there's that whole kind of Jack Kerouac kind of, um, you yeah, know, adventurous. You yeah, know. I'm guilty. Yeah, yeah. I guess, and, it, and that's changed in in various ways through the years. But, yeah. Um, 
But I, think, so, I think it's great on one hand. It's definitely informed the way I do pictures and the way I, I guess, write now or, or even live life. But, you know, it's, it's got its drawbacks too. Because America is, it's, it's all about the landscape, isn't it? It's, the, it's a really, like I've never, you know, I've never been anywhere like that. Like Amer- there's something about America, nothing to do with Americans and Americana and all that kind of, but like the landscape is like really like incredible. I don't really, like, you know, you go around Africa, you see, you know, you see these interesting places, but there's something about America. I don't know why why it is, but if you travel from Las Vegas, you go from Zion, you can drive from Zion all the way to Yosemite. You'll never drive through that kind of landscape like that through the Sierras, and it's it's amazing. Uh, I, I sometimes I wonder how we would f- uh, think about it if we had never heard the American myth. Because there's so much of that when you're in America. Yeah, yeah. And all my friends from Europe or Asia, you know, their dream is to do a road trip. Yeah, yeah. The road trip, the American road trip. Yeah. So that's all built up in, you know, somehow this story. And, of course, America was settled, well, by the white man anyway, in the East. And, you know, go west, young man. Yeah. And, you know, the pioneers moving and sort of the development of society and time went on then you get to California and California is really I always think of it as sort of the cliff it's the end yeah it's the end of it all once you cross the Pacific you're back to the past you're back to the beginning it's yeah. the oldest human beings have been found right over there yeah and all that craziness is there but I think that landscape gets built up in the story you know you're going from this sort of uh, mellow east coast forested friendly society friendly kind of yeah. place and you you start going out and like if you're a person who's wanting to test your metal yeah get away from home have an adventure the landscape goes right with you yeah, it starts yeah, to yeah. get desert and big mountains and yeah. crazy uh extreme right and it's perfect for that caraway it's, it's just made for all that kind of thing yeah yeah it's, it's almost a, you become like radicalized you know, like you went like a Californian is so different from anywhere you know, meet someone from Minnesota or you know, anywhere that like New England, you know, and they're, they're so they're so they're much more kind of European, yeah. But you know, the more you get towards the sea, <laughs> the more crazy everyone you know, everyone is. But there's that amazing thing, are you I think you said the other day how you know, you have like you know, your Microsoft and Hollywood and Silicon Valley and these things which are like revolutionary forces on the entire human civilization in this one place and it is it is tied to the the landscape the environment the the kind of people so there's this i you know i've been thinking a lot because here where we are um we're in poland so you have this the whole kind of holocaust like poland is almost like a disney-esque holocaust kind of thing there's a lot of people here it's kind of strange really it's interesting speaking to poles about the jews and the holocaust and everything else but um, the, the Jews are a manifestation of of being oppressed. You know, the Jews are successful and they have to work. They had to, they had to work traditionally. You know, two hundred percent more than everybody else to get anywhere to get anything. And um, and I wonder if that's the same. The people who could who could leave New England, travel all the way to California. Yeah, I think know. there's that cowboy uh, pioneer spirit. Out yeah, there. like you know, someone said, you know, the grapes of wrath. 
like the the family who I can't remember who actually make it to California. Like a lot of those ended up working in the aerospace industry, became really successful. It's an amazing you know. story of these Okies that went out there and the relatively quick turnaround of how things got developed out there. I want I'll plug my friend Rebecca Solnit's book, River of Shadows or Rivers and Shadows. Just Google Rivers Shadows, Rebecca Solnit. But she writes about um, she writes about this eloquently, brilliantly, about this thing that happened out west with movies and cinematography and, and computers. Yeah. Um, highly recommend this book. Yeah, yeah. But something happened out there, and it, it is, uh, I don't know what to say, you know. We're, we're looking for something when we go out there, and uh, these kind of pioneers found it. And, you know, Doug Robinson, the climber. Yeah. His father is kind of... One of the original reasons he was assigned to, you know, NASA before it was even called NASA was in Langley, Virginia, or somewhere near DC, and they wanted to jumpstart this aerospace, uh, you know, NASA thing. And he went out and scouted California, and he said, "This is where we need to do it." Right. That's interesting. And and that in turn formed Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I guess you had like Boeing and you have all these, you know, the, you know change. and Howard Hughes, like the, you know, because then the Hughes... Skateboarding, I mean, it all came from California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> music, the... Except you have that whole kind of New York, you know, New York kind of thing. Then you have the, you know, San Francisco, like LA kind of thing. It's really, yeah, really... Yeah, really. But then I guess there's so many, um, you know, for every one person who makes it, you know... You know, heading west, there's like a thousand people dead in the desert or yeah. on the streets. Of, I mean, it's also yeah. There's also a lot of. Uh, I think the the homeless people in Los Angeles, in particular, are the, the craziest on earth. Uh, a New York homeless person is never as crazy as yeah. these acid baked, just <laughs> sun blasted glazed-eyed lunatics you run into yeah, on yeah. the West Coast. Yeah. There where Scientology and cults and veganism and ism, ism, isms have, yeah. have grown up. And God, the people on the street are scary. I yeah, think. yeah. New York, I, I find, reasonable. Yeah, yeah. The darkest criminal in New York, you can sort of talk to, you know, just because he's still a human. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. What's the, what's the place um, where all the vampires live? Um, uh, San... Yeah, above Monterey. What's that? What's that city there? Um, you got Mont. You got Monterey. You get to San Francisco. There's one in the middle. Uh, we're all, you know that film, um, The Lost Boys. What's that? What's oh that? right, uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, I can't remember. It's called. Um, but yeah, but you go there and it, you know you can really see why you would imagine the place was full of vampires because there's so many uh, odd, odd characters. Um, but yeah, I think the um, so you so you left, so you left and you went. Decided to do your own thing. Where did you go? Well, it's weird that I didn't go to New York because that was my... I I really had some... um, You know, being in this little town, only child, kind of dreaming in my bedroom all day in my head all the time. I just had all these pictures of where I wanted to go. And it was definitely away from home and away from North Carolina. But New York City, really, I was kind of obsessed with it. I knew every street. I studied maps. When I was nine years old, I knew where everything was in New York. And when I finally did get there, 
I did. I, I found myself around perfectly. <laughs> you go uptown, it's like I was talking like, you know, take a left for 40 seconds. Well, but in, but in, as it turned out, um, it, you know, it, I did have a couple friends in L.A., so I ended up moving there first, and it just seemed to be a little more, for whatever reason, manageable. Yeah. And what, what did you do for, for money? <laughs> I was broke. Um, uh, but photography, you know, I'd quit school. Yeah. And um, photo assisted mostly. Yeah. But, but when I first got out there, I needed money and I did these. This is Hollywood before it got cleaned up. You know, it was pretty scummy. Yeah. And I got this job at the uh, Preview House Theater of Hollywood. And it was up above. What movie theater is that though, downtown? One of the great movie palaces. But you know, Hollywood Boulevard had, was definitely turning scummy. It was beautiful paradise, but at night it was just full of all kinds of criminal activity. And, <laughs> and upstairs in one of these big offices, this was like Glengarry Glen Ross or something. Yeah. Worse. There was a whole bank of telephones and all these tables. And you know, I'd go up there with these junkies and weirdos and, you know, and we would uh, have a whole list of phone numbers, and we we're trying to get people to come to see these Hollywood movie premieres, or not premieres, but uh, previews to yeah. get audience. All right, uh, you know. And then you would ask. Then they would have to fill in. And forms you would, and... you know, tell them that you know we would give you parking and all this stuff. But you basically, this is of course before iPhones. This is rotary or push button phones, but with zero 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 one. You know, just down to zero two three. Every phone number, and they'd give everybody a different stack of phone numbers, and one after another for four hours. And this was a, a job that I did at night. We were calling people at 11 o'clock at night, of course, yeah. we got hung up on. Hi, this is Jim Harrington from the Preview House Theater in Hollywood. And I'm like, oh, no. I used to know this spiel for a long time. <laughs> but I'd get out of there at about midnight. And um, I was making who knows what kind of money I was making. It was shit. I would, uh, didn't have a car. And I would walk home. And it was kind of like Times Square, I guess. Just street walkers everywhere. Prostitutes everywhere. Just getting grabbed in the balls by those big tranny. Sometimes you want to party. I'm like, party? An interesting concept. What an a party, really? <laughs> but gradually, I kind of, uh, oh, I got a job at, uh, in the dark room. Uh, one of my favorite photographers was Gary Winograd, a street photographer in New York City in the 60s. He was hanging around Lee Friedlander. Well, I don't know about hanging around, but he was a contemporary of Lee Friedlander and Deanne Arbus. And um, I met a guy who introduced me to his darkroom guy that printed his books and printed his shows. Winogrand had just died. So I got a job in his darkroom. That was kind of the first real photography job of any consequence. Um, not really me shooting, but I was working under this guy who had printed for Jim Marshall, who's a big music photographer, but Winogrand was the important one. And um, kind of a intense Boston guy, had a small uh, dark room down on La Brea Boulevard, or I mean La Brea Avenue. And uh, I made coffee, swept the front, and started developing film for him, working in the dark room. And uh, Winogrand had this way of working where he would shoot hundreds and hundreds of rolls of film per year and would not 
process them because he didn't want to see them immediately. He wanted to have a very objective view. Oh, well. So he would wait till the end of the year and, and develop all his films. So when he saw it, he wouldn't know if that was a good day. Was he feeling good? It was like looking at a stranger's uh, film. He could be very objective. However, he died of uh, too much drink. And when he died, there was hundreds of rolls of film left over in his fridge. So one of my first responsibilities was going over there to his widow's house, who was still grieving, I guess. Well, one would assume she was. <laughs> Who knows? He was a big drinker. There was a mountain of Smirnoff bottles. Oh, really? Looked like a Peruvian ice caked in the L.A. sunlight, glistening Smirnoff. And me and Tom would go over there and get more film and bring it, and I would process it. So it was kind of crazy. One of my early heroes, uh, I was developing his last rolls of film. Wow. It was cool. So, um... So when so if, when you when you were on the phone when you were bringing all these, bringing all these people up in in any way was was that um, leading on to in later life you're contacting these people these random people they don't know who you are and you're trying to sell them this idea that you're gonna come and take it's, their... it's all based in desperation of some sort but yeah it, everything these lonely these lonely old people you're ringing up saying hi I'm Jim Harrington I'd love to come and. Well, everything's an ask, and everything's a sell, right? Yeah. I mean, don't you feel like that in life? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, what do you want? You want a job? You want a girlfriend? You want a date? You want a fuck? You want a coffee? You want a... I mean, every... As soon as you get out of bed in the morning, there's an ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or some kind of striving towards whatever (laughs) it is. Mine, you know, was probably built on some original desperation of... uh, You know, I was broke. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I quit school and I moved out there. I didn't have any money, so, and also, you know, I was a small town boy. I didn't come from, you know, you from the crazy Harvard-educated art world or anything. I, yeah. was, I was a North Carolina hillbilly who, you know, even though I was looking at all these kind of high-minded art books and and had good taste in movies, I think. And, yeah. You know, I still didn't know anything about it. I hadn't really interacted with it. So I felt like I had to fake a lot of it. Yeah. Because I didn't know even what the reality was or what my place was. So it it was all a pretend until I figured out how to do it. Fake it till you make it. And is it still like that? I think think once you set that in motion, your life can... It takes a lot of untraining to be natural and... um, (laughs) To be... Yeah. Or even accept the fact that you've actually, you know, learned. You've learned, son. Relax. Yeah. You're, you're fine now. <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like you're a criminal for life in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. You have to untrain yourself. Um, I guess I kind of... Because I think... Um, because you're doing the same thing. We're both, you know, we're putting out books. Yeah. Uh, but it's a kind of criminal mentality. Like, if you ever listen to someone... Like, I... For some reason, I... I've met quite a lot of people who are like drug addicts or whatever, or you know, homeless people, or whatever. And they tell they're the most amazing storytellers. Like they really understood the, the how you could weaponize um, um, pity, you know, like oh, this terrible thing happened to me, and you know, they they'll tell this story. And you know, we live in a world where people are like oh, that's so terrible. Here, here's some, you know, and they'll just go along and just pile out of smack or something, you know. And the criminals will say, and they'll always tell you this story about how they ended up, you know, murdering someone, but it wasn't their fault, you know. They just, 
you know, the, the, the crimin- the prisons are full of all these people who are victims, you know, and uh, you listen to them and they're really, they're really good at it. There's like loads of people on, you know, go on YouTube, look at all these criminals. Yeah, well, but, there's, you know, at once charming, yeah, at once yeah. selling you something, a great salesman, and at once this amazing denial of it's somebody, kind of narcissism built in all that. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love New York kind of, you know, homeless <coughs> and or criminals on the street. They're yeah. much more entertaining. You know, they can charm the money out of your pocket without having to rob you, whereas the... But also they, also they have nothing to lose. So they can often be amazingly honest. They often have insights into us normal people that we, we can't see because, you know, they're not, they're not, some people know they'll never, ever escape the situation they're in. There's no way in, no way in the world, you know. We, and as a result, there's a whole part of the game they don't have to play. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or want to play or need to play. Yeah. And so the, the honesty that comes from that. They, they, like they have, instead of having fuck you money, they have like fuck you poverty or something, you know. It's not like if they work really hard, they're going to... Fuck you poverty. Yeah. Man, that's what I want to aspire to. But I guess it's that probably close. Is is a kind of a cli- another cliche where we talk like cliches are. I'm a big fan of cliches because they're always seventy five percent true. But this like stoical view of of life is that we we need to imagine less rather than more. Like oh, if only I had an iPhone eleven, my life would be a lot better. But you should be thinking, you know, if only I had a blanket that didn't smell of piss. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's uh, <laughs> but, you, but but those. You know, you're very. I'd be very careful not to look at people who have nothing. Like, oh, these people in this village, you know, they have nothing. They're always so happy, you know. But do one thing wrong, they're like, they'll chop your head off. You know, there's. It's very wrong to romanticize poverty, but there is a there is a point where you you just have enough where you don't have to give a you don't have to care, you know. And as long well, as it's funny t- you mention the roommate. Well, I don't know. It, I, you know, I remember reading Solzhenitsyn yeah. when I was, whenever I read that, junior high school or whenever they gave it to us. And uh, what's the one where he's in prison? Gulag uh, Archipelago. Or one I of guess those ones. Uh, it's the one where he's getting these little scraps of black bread yeah. and keeping them in his pocket. <laughs> this is really interesting to talk about because I never talk about this, but it, it even reminds me of being in the mountains and, you know, Camping or whatever, suffering yeah. cold, you know, whatever that is in the mountains. But I did kind of romanticize or, or think about this sort of um, him suffering in that cold prison. Yeah. Or maybe it was just his uh, ability as an artist and a writer to to bring some humanity into that suffering. But yeah. I really, I don't know what I can say about that. When he's talking about just getting these little bits of bread and how amazing that was yeah and there would have to be a you know a little scam with the prison guard and just getting these little squares of black moldy bread but it almost seemed kind of cool to me <laughs> he had I guess, something i think a lot have. of my friends in school were like oh my god can you imagine this horrible thing and but i i, I found that you know him f- wherever you're at like on a mountain or where finding the um Routine, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, kind of. You, you know, when you go into a mountain hut, you know, it's in the winter in the mountains, and you, you eventually get to this hut on the other side of a mountain. You kind of push open the door, and you get in there, and there's like half a half a bag of of, of noodles or something, and it's the most incredible. There's some, there's some still some. There's a gas canister with a bit of gas in it, 
And it's the most amazing thing. Like we were we were on the uh, in a hut on Mount Kenya, and we found this. Um, you know, the, Ameri- the American Army they have these like meal ready to eat these rations, and now you know this is full of yeah, all Marines. this processed crap that lasts for a thousand years. And in this hut, we found this one thing of um, cheese from American U.S. Army ration. Like it was a, it was like a you know, like a sachet of cheese. Just squeeze this cheese out. It's probably the most toxic thing. You know, could we set fire to it and blow up a bridge or something? We found this cheese, and we found Agent this Agent Orange with milk. Yeah, <laughs> and this tiny bit of pasta that was left in a bag. You know, it'd probably be on this. You know, and we cooked this pasta up, and we squeezed this cheese on it. And it, would, it tasted absolutely amazing, you know. And but then you could be in a, you know, a most amazing restaurant. It didn't. It didn't taste as good as that. That that cheese. My tartare is just a bit in yeah, the complaining. Yeah. But yeah, finding that yeah. it's yeah. working backwards yeah. instead of working forwards. Like both both of us. If anyone looked at our lives correctly, they would they would judge that we're basically, you know, like hard up, like hustlers. Who are always like only one, one, one job we don't get away from absolute poverty. You know, there's a, but we we've lived that way for such a long time that that we can, um, we know we can survive. You know, like there's always, you know, we we have we have all these skills we don't really know we have. Um, although I'm being paid to be here and you're not being paid to be here, so maybe you need to develop some of those skills. Um, but but the money isn't the money is never the important part, and it seems it's very easy to say that and make people assume that's because we have lots of money, but we always have just have enough money to not worry it so much. Where people who are always all they ever think about is the money, generally are very poor. I think where they've got like a, a million pounds in the bank or. Well, it's funny you say there's skill sets because I don't really think about it, and you probably don't think about it, and like you say, we're we've been living like this for so long we're used to it but then you talk to some people you know some friends and you realize um, and they say things like you know god how do you do it <laughs> and you're just thinking uh i don't really think what they mean but then a couple of days later i'll think about how they asked me and it's like some people really don't know how to live on the edge yeah um hey, someone the other day said to me for extended time <laughs> someone a really famous climber said to me the other day um uh, I, I am so I have so much money I no longer have to look into my bank account and I was thinking I never look in my bank account because I'm so afraid of what am right. I find <laughs> I never looked there's for always, a different reason there's always much less than I assumed was in there um, and you just yeah like because like, again we're both very similar like uh, this kind of if you kind of grow up in you know, I always make this joke that when we were kids we were given clothes because we were poor and then later on, like Patagonia, give you clothes because you because you do oh, stupid sure. shit. Yeah, yeah. And um, but you always know you can always go back to that. You're like like your poverty isn't isn't so bad. Like you're not going to starve to death. There's, there's you know there is a there is a base you can start working in B and Q or you can get you know some really shit job. Well, I was trying to get to some point a minute ago about this. Uh I'll try again. So I also had these dreams when I was a kid. Uh, for years, I had these dreams, and it was about. It was before I'd been to bigger mountain ranges, but I kind of made up some kind of extended Appalachian mountains, much higher, much steeper. Some kind of a ret, very high uh, 
gray, kind of always very dim twilight. And I'm way, way up on this thing. And I've got this little ledge. And it's very forbidding, swirling dark clouds, steep drops everywhere. But there's this sort of, uh, you know, this sanctuary, little teeny thing. But, yeah. it, but it's mine and I found it. And I'm up above and, you know, I can look down. <laughs> I don't know if it's like some gargoyle or something, but extremely comforting in all its darkness. And I had this obsessed dream all through my childhood into my teens. But then it's also like, you know, I kind of like when the power goes out. It's like I like, I can pull out the, the camp stove. Yeah. I sort of like when things get to survival mode. Yeah. But you know, you get these communities, you know, you live in this like highly modern civilized society. And then one day this big dump of snow comes and the power goes out. And suddenly everyone comes out and they start helping each other and helping the old people. And, and they have this like 24 hours where they suddenly revert instantly back to some, how we used to live maybe, maybe only 100 years ago, maybe less than that. And they absolutely love it. And yeah. then, the, then the snow melts and the, the power comes on and they go straight back into... Uh, Selfish, get out of my yard. Yeah, the government mentality. will do everything and where all of a sudden it's like they take ownership. Like, I think I'm a... Well, it's nice to see that. It's a communi- nice to see that we, we do have some humanity left. Yeah, oh yeah. And, it's all it's in and there. And it doesn't have to be practiced every day. Someone told me that he was, in a, he was a, an officer in the, in the army and he was in um, Afghanistan he said he had, he had all these young guys, you know, 19-year-old guys, who probably spent all their childhood playing computer games, not, not very fit, you know, just like a modern British, you know, teenager. He said these people were, like, so heroic, so brave, so... They just had... They could just switch into this, this, this uh, default setting of a human being, of this animal which could be noble and, you know, and, and, but then they could switch back again. You'd go back to a base and they'd be playing on their Xbox, you know, and like 24 hours before they were dragging, you know, some guy, they were carrying some guy. And, and I always thought that was, there's a, there's a way we can often look at people and say, oh, young people, they're all, you know, this or that. And um, where I think there is a default, there is a default setting for most people you know, we are all cowardly and afraid and have anxiety. But when we have no... But that's because we have... We, we're pri- privileged to have anxiety. We're privileged to commit suicide. We're privileged to worry. But when you really are in the... When the snow is, like, five foot high and the, there's no power, there's no time for all that, isn't it? It's like, right, let's let's start breaking out the furniture and making a fire or... I think, you know, I think most people... Um as much as everybody kind of likes Netflix and they like getting a frappuccino and all the, you know. I think modern society does kind of stress out everybody, young and old alike, even the, the youngest. And when things get down to that simplicity, I think it's kind of a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Just to turn things off yeah. for a bit and see what's important. What's important? Eating tonight, uh, not having snow fall on my face like something over my head yeah some heat and some food and everybody can relate to that and i think you know when the power goes off it's a bit of a relief to say i don't care what movie i'm watching because there are no movies tonight (laughs) you know yeah the ability to do nothing is uh (laughs) i think yeah when people get it like when that when that stuff shuts down i think it's kind of a relief even to 
even the youngins. I guess I guess that we we live in a time where there's so much choice, so many so many uh, you know you know multiple choice world. You're like where our probably our great grandparents, there was no choice. They they did exactly what their grandparents did. You know, they, you know whether like a, I had a relation who was a coal miner um, before the before the Second World War, and there was no unless you went and joined the navy or the merchant navy, there was no there was yeah that's what you were you were a coal miner, and you had this really brutal life, but everybody else was the same, you know, and um, it was just yeah except you weren't going to be a, you didn't want to be like a fashion designer and move to Milan. You know, you just didn't want to die until the age of 40. Well, I've always kind of um, slightly envied the village idiot who, <laughs> who's never been a mile past his house. Yeah. Doesn't, hasn't read a book, doesn't know what's going on in the world, truly doesn't. You need to move to Ireland. <laughs> well, there's no going back. And I love my complicated, weird mind and life. But imagine, like you were saying, like not being stressed about... Uh, you know what college, what career, yeah. what, 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 what movie tonight, what meal, yeah. uh, what hobby, what you know, all these choices, endless choice. It's a lot to think about. I, I know people. And imagine just well, I'm gonna go milk, milk a cow. <laughs> I mean, can you even imagine what goes through a mind that doesn't dream? Uh, it, it's sad, kind of, but it, it's also they probably have a kind of wisdom. What though, purity of of. Yeah, Resistance. but they probably have a, a kind of wisdom that we we lack. In that, like when um, living in Galway, um, in like extended family, there's people who've never been to Dublin, let alone never been to another country. And there was a really famous thing where they interviewed this Irish uh, farmer, and they said to him, "What would you, uh, if you won a, a million euros in the lottery, what would you do with it?" And he thought for a minute and he said, "I'd buy a new gate." Which is uh, which is amazing. I used to joke about, um, you know, when people start saying, so Jim, what would you do if you won a million dollars? I said, well, I'd definitely get uh, the best darning done on my socks. You know, I've got some holes in the side. Get every single one of them fixed. <laughs> but me and my dad, my dad loves to drive through the North Carolina mountains. So when I was a kid, we uh, just kind of aimless driving. We always did these exploratory things. And it's, you know, especially in the 70s and stuff, still quite hillbilly and remote. And um, we kind of got lost, and we're down in this little area, and we passed this old man, obviously had lived there his whole life, very remote. Just kinda, and we were asking where this little town was that we just missed, which was only like six or eight miles away, and he had never heard of it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And that sounds like most and, Americans. And we thought, well, no, this was really uncanny. Because it's like, well, maybe we're our accent, even though we're just yeah, yeah. two hours away living. Yeah. Maybe our accent, maybe it didn't, uh, Pensacola, I think was the name of the town. Not Florida, but this. Uh, no, I can't say I've ever heard of it. <laughs> He's like 80 years old. And we still talk to this 25, 30 years later. Was he fucking with us or was yeah, he just yeah. really that? into his holler yeah, he yeah. didn't know what was on the other side of it. <laughs> I, I once remember getting a, a lift with an with American guy uh, hitchhiking never a good idea and um, the guy was like where are you from? I'm like uh, I'm from England he goes England? England? What language do you speak? I was like English he went English? What like we do? 
<laughs> and I think, but I think Americans get a really unfair. Uh, they get like a really unfair um, press, and um, but often it's to do with language. People actually understand what you're saying. They think you're uh, they think you're Australian, or they just don't like you. Ask for some butter, and they go, "What? You got? Have you got any butter?" And they go, "What? Have you got any like butter for like a potato?" Bad butter, butter, and you're like butter. And you start doing the thing. Oh, you mean butter? Butter. You know, and it's um. So it's a, again, I think you know, like most miscommunication is at the heart of almost all human interactions that we're not actually very good at communicating with each other. I don't know why that is. You know, we're very good at sending the signal. We're not very good at receiving right. the signal. So maybe you know when you were on that phone, you know, and then you or when you're having to deal with the widow to get the, the you know, you're you're. Because so my son here, I got him this job one day a week in a publisher. Sounds like I'm sounds like one of these like you know rich assholes who gets his son. But anyway, so so I have a I have a publisher who publishes my books, and I was like, can you give my son a job because he needs to, you know, see the real world, see how it works. So he worked there for he worked there for a few months, and I was like, so like you and like what have you learned about the publishing business? And he's like, he said it's just it's just people on the phone, just people talking on the phone. And that's actually a good insight. It's a, publishing is not about books. It's about talking to people and trying to, you know, get the books from the author and getting the author to write the book and then getting the printer to print the book and getting the designer to... Absolutely. And just, and, publishing know, is not writing. Yeah, and then telling the people to buy the book. And what then, you do is a completely different thing. Yeah, but, even, but writing is about communicating. Commuting is it's all about... So if you like look at Shakespeare, all those stories about miscommunication... You know, the you know, you you think she's dead, she's not dead. You know, she, you kill yourself. She, you know, it's um, and I think you know, you said it's a very good thing to understand early on in life. You might not, under, you might not realize you understand it, but being able to communicate with people. So I often say to young climbers or people, you're like, I've had like three businesses, but one of the most important things I learned to try and make money is tell people what you want which is the simplest thing you could ever think of. But people don't. They go around the houses. You tell people what you want. You tell people how much you want, how much, you know, this is what I want. This, you know, you either give it to me or don't give it to me. But if you can't give it to me, what, what can I give you instead? Or So you just have this really simple thing. And busy people, you're like, I want to be sponsored by you. I want £20,000 a year. And they say, well... You know, that's the first thing you say to them. You don't say, I'd like to be sponsored, and no, no, no. You have this big, long... You know, people are busy. Like, I want £20,000, and you can sponsor me. I'll wear your clothes. I'll do this for it. What do you think? And they go, well, we can give you £10,000, and but we want you to do this as well. We want you to do these extra things. And you're like, oh, well, I can do half those extra things, but I'll want... And you just... But you, within the space of, like, 60 seconds, you can... you can The deal is done. But instead, you have these, like, people... Then, well, I, f- I find that nobody wants to negotiate anymore. I, negotiation is like off the table. People... Um, oh, really? Yeah, they kind of fly. I, it's like, it, it seems to be younger people. It's like, you know, in this photography world, which is very weird now. Yeah. Um, budgets have shrunken. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, they, people are hiring people that aren't so great because they'll do it for free. Yeah. But um, negotiation, you know, and just those kind of things where let's talk out a deal. People are trying to throw out this one version, but they don't really know how it works, you know. Yeah. Like, for, you know, in my case of 
<clears throat> been around for a while, some decades in the biz, and you'll be talking to someone in their 20s who's uh, somehow managing a deal of whatever it is you're working on. And they say, here's what we need, and here's the pay, and it's always ridiculous. Yeah. And I say, well, you know, that's a little out of the question. Uh, <laughs> what about this? And then they just kind of scatter sometimes. Yeah. So you have no, you have no power. Never uh, counter-offering. Yeah. Just this kind of cruel... They, they scatter. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess you're in the but wrong business, no, maybe. No, I think they are. <laughs> <laughs> but they know themselves I don't but, think but, so but, no, but they know themselves like if they agree to this deal you want then they'll be the one who's removed by the guy above who's equally is I can just replace this guy he didn't replace his photographer with a cheaper photographer therefore I'll just get rid of that guy and the next guy oh, I'm like if you want me you gotta pay for me if you want just anything or anybody yeah uh, there's plenty that will do it for free but they're like the get, they're these like, gatekeepers you know like production Production companies or the BBC or the, you know, these people who traditionally had all the power, you know, you know, people are desperate to get this TV series together and they're, they're coming up with this, this absolute shite, you know, it starts with a great idea, you know, let's take, you know, this woman who, you know, who's, you know, just learnt to, learnt to walk again and she's going to cross the Gobi Desert. And it's like, you know, you know, what in like a one hour documentary, you know, just one other person, what and then it's like, well, could you do it with a footballer? You know, could she should you should you go across with a footballer? You know, because we need someone who's just a celebrity, because she's just she's just a woman who just likes to walk and wants to cross the Gobi Desert. We need a footballer. It's like, oh yeah, that'd be good. And could we do it with like a six part series? And uh, could she walk across, you know, some other places as well? <laughs> And then it's like, well, that woman is a problem. Could it be a footballer and uh, Angelina Jolie? And it just becomes this absolute shit fest of shitness. And then, and it's completely and it, away from the original story. And it goes along for like a year, and they're, they're getting this little bit. And that's of how all these things money. get adapted. And then at the end, someone comes in with this intimate, Netflix. great story about a, a human, a human story. And there's just exactly what you say, these little changes, and then you suddenly get a three-year Netflix series that has nothing to do with the original yeah, idea. Yeah. And that poor filmmaker and person just get forgotten and left yeah. to the side. Because it's not commercial. It's because the people, the people who are the gatekeepers are all, you know, there's always someone above them. They're always afraid. I think we live in a world where it's run by kind of parking attendant kind of people. But it's amazing how that stuff will dictate what's going on because... The culture. Those gatekeepers uh, actually uh, change over really quick now. Yeah. In the old days, like these photo editors for some of the great magazines, they would hold reign for... Uh, Till they'd retired, I guess. Sometimes decades. And um, well, some people might think that's kind of bad, the, the, the power people being in control. But in a lot of ways, it wasn't. It was these really brilliant people that had long relationships with artists and photographers. Yeah. And um, they knew how to negotiate. They knew how to, they were very uh, visionary and they got the right people for the right job. I and mean, they really cared about what they were doing. Yeah. There were repercussions. Yeah. If things weren't done right, you know. Yeah. It wasn't like, just there, you know, they, they, everyone cared a lot more. And uh, now you have these people. I can't keep them updated quick enough in my phone book. Uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Now she's the art director. Oh, wait. 
Carol Jones. I thought it was Carol Smith. So, so that Carol's gone, now there's a new one. And, you know, how can they care when they're only there a year? Yeah, yeah. And um, punish for any mistake. <clears throat> and their budgets have shrunk. So, you know, being really good, you know, good enough is sort of the, the new deal now. Yeah. Is it, like a, is it like a revolution against competency in a way? Like, mm. like a deliberate revolution? Like it's almost... So, so this idea of mastery is if someone is... It's almost... Um, it's not um, democratic to have this person who is has been, you know, in this job for this this old <clears throat> white this old white guy who's been running this <clears throat> magazine. Mastery for, does seem old fashioned these days. Yeah, it's like chivalry is another. You know, I, I, climbed, I think these I climbed, things are very old fashioned and just too heavy for us to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I feel like sometimes my even my, you know, some of my photography. Um, the craft I take in the printing and the thing is is a bit too baroque, <laughs> or because you know people really. I mean, these ad campaigns are now kind of based on the look of the sort of Instagram. Uh, How would it fit? Look on the phone, yeah. Yeah, very casual. You know, these snapshots, while you know they're kind of nice and attractive to look at, but they're meant to live for about an hour or two and get some likes and then they go down the feed. Yeah. And that look is is so prevalent and but it's casual. casual. I think people like this kind of they like the short lifespan and the immediacy of this of the sort of Instagram picture and that has kind of infiltrated into fashion spreads and the look of Is it not the is it not the celebration of like mediocrity though? Like whatever, most people. Well, that's why I was asking. Do you mean deliberate? Uh, is it a celebration of it? I don't know if it's like it. Like it, you're, if you're um, if you're Picasso, you know, you know, like, why do art galleries only are they only filled with pictures by the great masters? You know, that's not that's a bit. They're all privileged with talent. So <clears throat> well, that gets back to those kids I was talking about. They're like, oh, I got to work. Yeah. Uh, maybe they don't. Maybe like, I'm I am the old fart who's talking about learn how to do it well, and they're finding out. You know, I don't have to. I think there's people yeah, out yeah. there working a lot more than me. That well, <clears throat> you know, some shit you just can't understand. Yeah, yeah. Change and uh, maybe mastery is an old-fashioned thing. Well, I think I, I think I told you that I started having things a, move fast. Mastery takes time. Yeah, Daddy-o. What was that thing? It was like an <clears throat> advertising agency saying. I want it, I don't like the word new anymore. I want you to find me something better. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I had this, I started having it with it like a one tweet debate with someone who was basically talking about all voices matter. And, you know, like there's all these like, um, you know, hidden voices and this, all this kind of stuff. And, and I said the idea of mastery is like really important, you know, like otherwise you're just going to allow all this mediocrity kind of creep in there. And her response was, mastery is a gendered term. Really? And I just said, I'm out. Like, I'm not going to have a conversation with you because you are insane. And, um, and I really worry... They really said that. Yeah, and, and it's, you can't tell what's a, what's, a, what's a joke anymore, what's like a parody of someone. And what is, you know, most, most of it isn't a parody. But that, but that person's an academic who I'm having this debate with in a university, and she is... You know, an academic of, you know, she should be the best person to be teaching people, you know, ideas. But if, you, if you're fundamentally seeing the world 
that the word mastery is a problem, let's not, not, let alone what mastery really means. And um, so I think that I think in the past, I think people we lived in like a, a world without bullshit. You know, you, if you were good at something after the Second World War, the idea of uh, privilege and the else was broken down. You know, people came back from the war and they had the GI Bill, all these things, and people, you know, people who would had never gone anywhere did. A system was in place where people could rise up because they were really good, good at things. And I feel like we're going the opposite way again. I mean, if you don't look up to mastery, then... Um, well, I see this with a lot of people too nowadays where this it's the sort of... Uh, maybe it's connected to this uh, empowering, this empowerment thing. Yeah. Everyone's empowered. <laughs> like an it, Oprah Winfrey kind of. But it's like if everyone's so empowered, does that mean... Uh, it seems a little old-fashioned and quaint to have heroes. Yeah. I mean, I had nothing but heroes across the spectrum oh, yeah, of yeah. music, writing, art, photography, climbing. Nothing but people I looked up to and wanted to somehow get close to, you know. I mean, as far as learn from and whatever technique. And... Um, but does that take too I much work? I don't feel like... I don't hear that as much. Does that take too much work, though? I don't know if it takes too much work. Well, and that my immediate thought is yes, it takes too much work. But then, as I think about it, I think it's even more um, darker than that. It's it's um, putting someone else above you. You know, everything is such a, yeah. a me thing now. How Starting dare can with MySpace and Facebook, everybody has an eight by ten now. Everybody yeah. has their resume. That's what a profile is. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, dating, everything's a yeah, a resume. Here's my headshot. Yeah, it's me. Oh, what am I interested in? Let me tell you. I, I, I have appreciate a blue. the literature of uh, everybody's gotten good at this thing. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Twenty years ago, these are my pronouns. Everyone's just used to talking about themselves, and yeah, as yeah. they do more and more of that, they're talking less and less about other things, and or it's all about the brand or heroes. Yeah, yeah. The own the you know, but and it, I find that you know, and it, and so if. If you're not really having heroes, then yeah, what does mastery mean? And is it dangerous to have heroes? Like if you said my hero, like one of my heroes. I don't think it is as much as people think it is. I th there is a bit of. Um, if you have like Malcolm X, you know, if you know, if you have like Martin Luther King as one of your heroes on your Instagram thing, then you find out that there was some kind of rape allegations or something. <laughs> Suddenly you have to remove that because this guy is. Well, you know, life is a con you know Woody Allen or whatever. There's all these alleged and real things. Life is dirty and people are afraid of the messiness of life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm one of those people that can separate uh, the art from, I don't know, like, where, what's well, the limit? Is this like a, a well, child, were, child raping mass murder, Stanley Kubrick? I mean, he, where does it go to where had I, had I won't watch side. their film? He had a good side as well. <laughs> but he also made some good movies. Uh, Cause I, cause I, you know, a good example of this is uh, if you look at the first Rocky film, you know, I love some pop culture. The first Rocky film, it's this guy who was a complete, you know, he's he's over the hill, he's, everything is going badly, he's like a enforcer. And uh, somehow, you know, somehow he gets to this point where, I think he loses anyway at the end, doesn't he, Rocky? I don't think he actually wins against Apollo Creed, maybe in the first one, I can't remember. But, it, but it, you know, it's like a, it's a real, by the time whatever success he gets, you know, he's like this guy... But if you compare it to like Creed, which is, you know, the, is that like the sixth or seventh film? You know, you have like Apollo Creed's son who, 
he's almost not really done any real, you know, any real, he's really not really suffered to end up becoming like, to come to the same position. You know, it's like, it's, it's almost like a, it's like, there's no real mastery. It's almost like, you know, a superhero where suddenly they just appear. They have no real background story and they're the strongest superhero in the world and they can do all well, most superheroes, they have to go through the parents were killed. You know, look at Superman and, you know, Spider-Man and all these people, they, they always have this hero's journey where they, there's a lot of darkness and, you know, they fought and they overcome and then they become a superhero and they have to fight against, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. Where now it's like, all oh, those superheroes, you know, like Superman is a bit privileged because he was, he was a white guy. From Krypton. Yeah, there's all, um, I guess there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, in, in calling people heroes, maybe that's the wrong word, but, you know, because you need to have, uh, you know what they say about goals. Like, if you don't have a goal, then how do you know when you got there? Yeah. And I think that's the same with inspiring people. That, you know, how do you lift yourself up to be the climber you want to be or the photographer or the yeah. writer or the musician? You know, if you haven't held uh, Chuck Berry or Django Reinhardt up to this high degree, I think it's... You're being masters. I think it's everything, actually, having these people. How do you know? Um, and yeah. they're, and they're, all, they're they're standard bearers. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the most important thing in life, is to yeah. have these people in, our, in society, as humans on planet, to have uh, achievers that we look at and appreciate and, and strive to. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, if you look at some Muhammad Ali... And Malcolm X, like two. I mean, that's the religion. People you know, that worked hard and did great things. That's yeah. the full flower embodiment of our human existence. Self improvement and. Yeah. With all the dirty, uh, weird uh, mistakes we make and all that. But um, I think that's the religion. Is maybe, maybe we're going back to a time where, unless your mother had sex with a god, you know, you, you're, you're not. You're not you're never going to get anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. like I lost could, out on that one. Not everyone can be Achilles. You know, you need to... Uh, um, just mortals in there. Yeah, we're just mortals. But yeah, I, wouldn't, I wonder... But eventually, I think eventually, it must, it must always go back where people start... What, we really need someone who's really competent to do, you know, like planes are built by competent people. You know, like generally... <laughs> you know, you don't want people to just like... Um, you know, how you'd run a magazine, like running like a Well, that's what Boeing happens with Boeing right now, right? Yeah, that yeah. whistleblower guy came out. There had been a restructuring of, and they were starting, the guys at Boeing were just saying, well, you know, this is going to take a lot of paperwork and this is mucking up our thing. Just, we're not going to talk about this. This is what's going on with All right, yeah. yeah. It's starting to become. Yeah. I think it's like the same in, the same in politics, the same in, you know, there's this thing about having the safe pair of hands. You know, like when you, if you have anything to do with television and stuff, it's never about getting the most talented person because talented people are generally quite hard to control. They're, you know, they're, they're unreliable in a way. Um, they kind of do their own thing because they're not held back by all the mediocre people around them who are trying to, you know, they see them as just being a sheep. Just get, and get, that, just get this person into there and, you know, they're running around, they're jumping, they're scaring everybody. You know, all the other sheep, you know, like, just just kill that one. <laughs> just, and, um, so is it like a chess game? We need the pawns that... Uh, yeah, yeah, everyone has a... Everyone has a I guess it's a... Everyone has a place, I guess. Everyone has a... To, you know, and... That destroys everything I just said. Maybe that's the ultimate truth. But it's only... I think it's only 4% of jobs that exist are, are uh, creative. 
And most people don't want to have a creative job. Most people want to have a, a job where it's completely mundane and repetitive and robotic. But unfortunately, all those people's jobs are being replaced by robots and machines. They don't call it robotic for anything. You know, and I think maybe there's a, a, a reaction of that is people are incredi- increasingly angry at people who have creative jobs. So in a way, like the two of us, we, we're living in a... You know, like, we're living in a time where we have skills which can't easily be replaced by an algorithm or a, or what you know, like a machine. Um, well, a lot of people, yeah, you're right. A lot of people are wanting to become in this, you know, creatives because it's the same. Now they can because digital photography has made things easier, and all these digital programming, filmmaking possible. But not everybody's cut out for it. And I think increasingly that there's the increasingly people go into it, but they realise. You can't make any money. They give the impression that they're making a living, but they're not making enough of a living because they assume that you make a lot of money doing it, maybe. So they can't, they, their lifestyle isn't well, able to. Uh... Change strategy, you know. Oh, no, no, thank you. I'm sorry, love. Sorry, no. Sorry, I'm not hungry. Sorry, I don't speak. I don't speak either. Yeah. No, we don't have any money. We are poor, we are poor writers, we are. No, no, sorry. <laughs> so there's a, there's a good example of communication, you know. So maybe she came to speak to the wrong, <laughs> the wrong people. But um, yeah, so maybe it's like a, revol- a revolution against those people who like if where if everybody else is going to lose a job like it's something like the number one job for a man is driving a driving driving a car or driving a truck so with driverless cars those, all those jobs are going to disappear and all a lot of the white collar jobs are going to disappear as well because computers can do the same thing so the people who the 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 upper classes are going to be people who can use skills which can't be easily be replaced by a computer or some of the, you know, so it's, so maybe that's why, maybe they're just drip pulling us down. So here, you know, like if you replace the word um, Jew with 1%, all, if you look at anything to the Nazis said or anyone else, it com- is completely relevant to what someone who, co- who rails against the 1%, just replace the two words, it's exactly the same. So maybe, but basically the Jews were, were oppressed because they were so competent. They could run complex organisations, factories, government departments and they became people hated them because they were so competent and you'll but you'll see the same with like the Lebanese. it's also just easy to blame the minority when you're when your majority is having any kind of trouble yeah yeah and trump's taking that rule book yeah um, yeah yeah find some minorities to blame yeah yeah and get everybody rallied around that it's easy it works every time as yeah is it i think it's a, i think it's kind of hardwired into people to be um I think, I think people, a default setting is some kind of bitterness, envy, you know, like maybe a lot of uh, religion, organised religion is trying to com- combat that, those, those things which are very divisive. Like, you know, if you go through life bitter and envious and hating your next door neighbour, you're like, you know, what do you call it, coveting someone's ass. You know, like religion is trying to take away all those parts of... Uh, well, that's the one thing know. I like about what I do is that I don't really feel um, subject 
to the whims of the economy. Yeah. So I can't be um, pulled into or manipulated, burning and hanging and gassing <laughs> certain people because I, you know, my economy is kind of based on me. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, I've done great when the economy sucks. Yeah. I've done terrible when the economy has been great. So yeah, I yeah. don't ever seem, I would never vote on the economy. Yeah. Because it's seldom affected me that I can tell. Yeah. I've got this mini economy of my own that's... Uh, but you're also, you're also free. You're also someone who can... Like, like most people, the, lo- the poorer you are, the less mobile you are. You know, because of your family structures, you can't just... I think my great-granddad was a... Um, he worked on the docks in the east end of London. And there was obviously some, some kind of... Uh, probably in the 1920s financial... You know, the Great Depression, like he moved to, to Yorkshire, to Hull, which is another city. They probably had something else was going on. They had the fishing industry. So the fishing, people still eat fish, even when there's a depression. But they maybe not be buying as many things from other countries. You know, there's not much trade, there's not much trade. So that ability to be mobile. Like I, I, I tried to teach my kids that the idea of staying living in Sheffield or Leeds or somewhere is a complete mistake. Like populations that were always... The most successful people have always been willing to move somewhere else and not be static in one place. And I think there's a lot of places in the UK anyway, same in America, like Detroit and places, that have no real reason to exist anymore. You could just remove them and move everyone, tell everyone to move somewhere else. And all those people would be better for it. You would destroy their communities and, and everything else, but it would be better for their children, their grandchildren to not be in that place anymore because it has no reason. It's like living in a sea, a village, sea, a fishing village where it's the sea. True. And it doesn't matter happened. why, you know, just look at it. Uh, the fact is, is it is not working anymore. Yeah. And it, you know, you're on a downward. Some people have that um, uh, allegiance to home. The steel, the steel factory. You really care, yeah, you're right. If you really care about your family, um, you should care about your current one, not your ancestors. Yeah, yeah. Staying in this. Sacred we'll stay in this decrepit, this falling apart house, you know. But 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 maybe maybe being a creative person is this like hunter gatherer, you know. When we were hunter gatherers, like when you when you hang out with hunter gatherers, they have very little, you know. They have you go with a. Um, it's alpine style. It is, yeah. Like these these guys we met in uh, Kenya. We we're teaching these guys about, about climbing. This um, the uh, uh, it's like a. It's like a Kenyan tribe, kind of what it's called now. Um, the is it the Kikuyu? Anyway, this this tribe, and um, they have a the guys have a blanket. They're incredibly vain people. They have this the guys have this blanket. They'll maybe have some like a kilt type thing. They'll have a belt and they'll have a little mirror on the belt because they like to look check themselves out. They'll have a mobile phone. They'll have uh, a cup and they use this cup to uh, make milk uh, blood milk blood tea, which is milk and right. blood mixed together. And they'll have a knife, and they might some some people might have like an AK forty seven, but they might only have like a, one bullet or a few bullets, and that's just to shoot. It's not to shoot animals; it's to shoot other people who are going to try and steal their their goats or whatever. But they live a really really simple life, and um, they are genuinely incredibly happy, joyous people, and they know everything about the landscape. They know the stories and the myths and and everything else, and. So that we were, we were there because they had this idea that, you know, we the 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 Western idea is that these guys they need to go to Nairobi and 
and learn to do, you know, learn engineering or they need to get rid of all these old-fashioned things and become civilised. And what they do, they end, they, then they end up having these qualifications, they go and work in the government or they work in something, they lose, they become fat, depressed, you know, unhappy, they become corrupted by everything. And it's like maybe these guys have got the right idea, you know. Well, you, you say hunter-gatherers and I started thinking about uh, Alpine style, fast, yeah. fast and light. Yeah. But I, I just started thinking about vaudeville people who were traveling with one trunk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from yeah. city to city, uh, Iowa City, and you know, and um, and you said learning the the local stories, you know, kind of doing that. Yeah, and these people, Hus- kinda, hustlers, basically. Uh, you know, it is kind of hustling, but you know, suddenly you get a radio gig. Oh, I, I got a I got a morning radio show in um, wherever, Milwaukee. So stay there for a while and hit the road again. It's tenuous, I guess, compared to. Um, the American ideal, but then if you compare it to these tribesmen you just talked about, it's exactly the same thing. Do you know this idea that when we had the agricultural revolution about ten thousand years ago, that instead of us um, instead of us uh, domesticating wheat, that humans were domesticated by wheat. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. which is a really great way of thinking of it. You know, we ended up stopping hunter-gatherers and we stayed in one place and all we did was grow wheat all over the world. You know, everywhere we went, we just grew wheat and that's all we did. We were like enslaved by this wheat. And if the wheat failed, we all starved. Uh, and then we had to protect the wheat because other people who'd lost their wheat would come and try and get our wheat. So we had to build walls and bring our, have armies and we had to have people who would organise us all together. We had to have kings and rulers. And, and the world is still on that, still organised in that way. So you know, this idea that conservative people... The hunter-gatherers, you know, I mean, it, it can be lean, it can be dangerous. Like Elvis, you know, Elvis was a hunter-gatherer and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Justin Bieber. <laughs> you know, they're, um, but then Elvis wasn't. Once he, he got that rich, he, he became uh, kind of enslaved to the house and to the... Yeah, yeah. Well, to Colonel Tom, that's a whole other story, but, you know, he became very uh, stationary. But you were saying about Jerry Lee Lewis, how he... He had. He became this hugely famous person, but then lost everything, and had to start again. So hunter gatherer is the same. You know, like he would, he would, he would be facing famine and starvation, and he had to move on to somewhere else and start. And I, start. I interviewed his uh, that his his wife, who yeah. was his thirteen year old cousin oh, yeah, yeah. that he married. I, I interviewed her a few years ago, and. Um, she was telling me that story. She had never been interviewed on video ever. Oh, really? Which is astounding to me. She's such a massive part of rock and roll history. Massive. She'd never been interviewed ever on video. Wow. That was the first time. And she was talking about, um, to the listeners who may not know, Jerry Lee Lewis was around the time of Elvis Presley and had this meteoric rise within a year and a half, was the biggest thing in the world. Two big hits on the radio. Went to London. They found out that he had with him his 13-year-old cousin, who was his wife, who he had married. And they uh, jettisoned him out of the UK. And as a result, his worldwide stardom dropped down to the bottom once again, making 20 bucks a night again. Or uh, yeah. So his wife, Myra, ex-wife, she goes, a lot of people forget. They forget about me. <laughs> 
in this part of the story after that London incident. They sort of just forget. They know me about this, but we were married 10 more years after that. And, um, and she said, you know, those were the years where he could not get arrested, just no money. But he said, those were the happiest years of our, our life and, and his, and he was happiest when he was making no money. <laughs> he loved playing. Jerry Lee was so just such a maniac about music. If he was just playing in these honky tonks for no money, that's what he enjoyed the best. And things were pretty sane. And she goes, the only time things really got nuts and crazy every time was when the money started coming. And in 1968, suddenly he was becoming a country star and he started getting millions again in hits. And that's when the big drugs and the insanity came back and they got divorced. Anyway. Oh, wow. So I think we'll... um we could see you all day talking. I think I have to, I have to fly home soon. So, um, oh, you have a plane to get. Yeah, but it's been, been uh, great talking to you. Not, but we didn't, we didn't talk about climbing very much. But you know. Oh yeah. What do you want to know? Climbing is climbing's boring. <laughs> we'll save we'll save that for our next next is another install. We're doing El Cap, right? Oh yeah, we're going to do El. We'll climb El, We're going to climb El Cap. So right. yeah, we'll make. Maybe we should make a film about climbing El Cap. Anyway, well, what can we? How can we hustle? How can we hustle climbing Something El Cap? else somebody wants to see, me yeah. on a rump. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, I shall switch off this recorder. We'll go and find that, We'll go and find that woman and uh, give her a, yeah. a slotty or something. So anyway, goodbye. What time is it? Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.